G'day folks, welcome back to the Ubuntu Security Podcast for 2022. Uh, we are back with a bang this week. I'm really excited to bring you this week's episode actually because we have got a special interview uh, this week with Case Cook from Google. Seth Arnold and John Johansson from the Ubuntu Security team sat down with Case uh, at the end of last year to talk to him all things uh, Linux kernel self-protection project, including the recent developments around fine-grained kernel address space layout randomization and others, and they do get into a lot of great detail there, so if you're interested in anything like that, do stick around for that, which comes up in the later half of this episode. But as usual at first, we will do the roundup of security updates that have happened in the past, well, few weeks that we've been off during the break. So this last uh, three weeks, there were 31 unique CVEs that were addressed by the team. Most of these were done right at the end of uh, last year, actually. The first of these was for Mumble. This is the low latency VoIP client, and it works on a client server model. The way the client works is there's a public list of servers you can connect to, and anyone can register one there. Uh, A malicious actor then could register a server, and that then would have a web URL that specifies some protocol other than HTTP or HTTPS. And the idea is then as the client, you can right click on that entry and go open this in a web page. Um, Mumble is built with uh, Qt, and so then it would go and spawn that uh, URL uh, through the QDesktop services uh, class, which would then, you know, maybe if that was say an SMB uh, URI, it would use uh, SMB protocol to connect to that, and you could serve up a desktop file, uh, and Qt would go and execute that desktop file, basically running arbitrary code on your machine. So you can imagine the simple fix for this was just to make that uh, kind of allow list only HTTP or HTTPS. But it does make me wonder how many other uh, Qt applications out there may have a similar sort of vulnerability where they are just calling uh, you know that QDesktop services open URL function with uh, a user supplied or an attacker supplied URL that could be any scheme. So you want to look out for if you are a Qt developer. After that, we had updates for Log4J. So I did talk about uh, Log4J2 back in uh, the, the last episode of last year. Uh, in this case, you know, it was the, I guess, biggest high-profile vulnerability that we've seen for a while. Uh, so we've now published updates as well for our 1604 Extended Security Maintenance customers. That was done uh, right at the end of last year. At the same time, uh, there was an, another vulnerability that was found in Log4J. So we've published updates for that as well for Ubuntu releases 2104 and 2110. Uh, in this case, it was possible to crash uh, applications using Log4J by specifying a crafted string, so similar to the original vulnerability, uh, but in this case, it wasn't a code execution. It was, uh, you could call it a denial of service because it would do uh, an infinite recursion basically when trying to evaluate all the various uh, lookups that it needs to do within that. Now, I've got a link in uh, the show notes to the knowledge base article that we have around this and the other Log4J vulnerabilities if you want some more details there, so go check out the Ubuntu wiki. Uh, there was an update for OpenJDK after that. So this is updating uh, to the latest point releases for OpenJDK 8 and OpenJDK 11. And this is in Ubuntu releases 16.04, Extended Security Maintenance 18.04 and 20.04 Long-Term Support 21.04 and 21.10. This has the mix of, or has a mix of different issues uh, that we do see get fixed in these various Java um, point release updates, including things like a possible information leak that could be achieved from a malicious FTP server if you are using uh, the Java FTP client class. There was also uh, mishandling of jar archives that would have multiple manifests. In this case, uh, you could basically get uh, the regular signature validation that is done for jar archives to be bypassed there. 
Uh, it was possible to uh, bypass the Java sandbox through a crafted Java class. Uh, use of weak crypto ciphers by default in Java would potentially lead to an info leak if you could obviously get it to use you know, a weak crypto cipher and you could break that as uh, an attacker. What else? Uh, denial of service through malicious uh, RTF documents or BMP files or even class files and a bunch of others. So yeah, if you want more details on that, I've got again some more details in the show notes. Uh, updates for Python was after that. So in this case, we've patched up to three different Python CVEs in uh, different Python versions in different releases. One of these CVEs was common to all of them. Uh, so that was, uh, and actually all of these were uh, denial of services that could be uh, achieved against uh, the URL loop HTTP client. So you know that's used in lots of Python applications. Uh, use the URL loop HTTP client for fetching various things over HTTP. And in this case, you know, a malicious server was able to trigger all these denial of services against each of these versions. Uh, the first of these was an infinite loop that could uh, occur when handling of the 100 continue HTTP response. Basically, a malicious server could send that at a very slow rate and cause uh, the uh, HTTP cause the Python application uh, to just sit there uh, hanging. Uh, there was also a couple different regular expression denial of service attacks that could be uh, achieved from a malicious server. Again, both of those were in uh, basic authorization handling. There was a couple different regular expressions there that had either quadratic complexity uh, yeah, or catastrophic backtracking that could be triggered. So you could again get you know, CPU based denial of service. Uh, what else? A couple more to go through. We've got an update for HTML doc. Uh, this is for Ubuntu releases 20.04 long-term support and 2104. Uh, this is, I guess, the set of utilities used to convert HTML and markdown documents into things like uh, EPUB or PostScript or PDF, you know, with a table of contents and all of that nice kind of stuff. Uh, basically, someone's been fuzzing this and they found a possible null pointer reference. If you were given a crafted HTML input file, you could basically get HTML doc to crash. And last of all, we had an update for Firefox. So this updates Firefox to the latest upstream point release, which is 95.0.1. Uh, thanks to uh, Chris Coulson for working on this one, actually, you know, over the holiday break. Uh, this is uh, for Ubuntu releases, 18.04 long-term support, 20.04 long-term support, 21.04 and 21.10. Uh, in this case, there was a couple different uh, Linux-specific issues, one of them being a possible crash in the web render subsystem on uh, various X11 uh, system configurations. So if you are still using X11 and not Wayland, uh, you could have hit that one. As well, uh, this fixes, I guess, a pretty high-profile bug which uh, in the handling of uh, connections to Microsoft.com domains and the handling of uh, TLS to those. So that is it for the week in security updates. All right, uh, so as I mentioned at the start, we do have a very special guest uh, who has been interviewed for the podcast this week. Uh, Seth Arnold and John Johansson from the Ubuntu security team uh, sat down with Case Cook from Google. Uh, he's also the head of the kernel self-protection project uh, to talk to him about Linux kernel hardening, uh, self-protection of the kernel. This includes things like uh, kernel address space layout randomization and the recent attempts around fine-grained kernel address space layout randomization. And that digs into a lot of uh, fine details details around uh, you know the way the object files and linker scripts and all of that kind of work for that uh, things like kernel address pointer info leaks uh, through debug logs and how that's sort of been fixed over time 
uh, things like you're relying on undefined behavior in C to try and detect possible integer overflows or you know or the lack of, and even then uh, looking at things like hardware support for detecting memory corruption and more. So yeah, they go into a lot of great detail on a lot of this. Uh, yeah, it's really awesome that they were able to do this. And actually, you know, if you don't know, Case was actually one of the founding members of the Ubuntu security team back in the day. So yeah, this is uh, some really awesome stuff. And yeah, I'm really happy to be able to bring it to all of you now. So this is uh, John Johansson and Seth Arnold of the Ubuntu Securities team talking to Case Cook, who's one of the upstream kernel security gurus who's uh, involved in the KSPP project, so the Kernel Self-Protection Project. And today we're going to be talking to Case about uh, KASLR, or Kernel Address Space Layout Randomization. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, uh, I think there's a lot of, we, we sort of chatted right before this got started about all the different places that KSLR gets, or ASLR has been used in user space and kernel space and, and sort of, uh, there's different implementations, there's different approaches. Um, so I think there's uh, some, some question about how all that fits together. Right. And so hopefully I can one help of, One of the that. questions is, you know, it, how useful is KL, KA, <laughs> I'm going to have problems with this one today. <laughs> yes, K, KASLR. How, how useful is it compared to, say, uh, user space randomization, address right. randomization? Yeah, so the I think the, the piece that, uh, to think about it, it's more about um, what is the the address space in address space lay, layout randomization like how, how large is that address space and how large is the, the program you're moving around in there to a random position. Um, and in, you know, for 32 bit user space, you have a relatively limited address space. You've got, you know, your 32 bit VA and uh, you can sort of push your program around in there, but you have to leave room for the stack. You have to leave room for the heap and you can, you know, randomize those also. So each piece has its own like, relatively small window of where you can move it around. Um, but entropy on 64-bit user space is uh, quite a bit larger. Um, now it's not 64 bits because there's, you know, it's only a 48-bit virtual address space. Like there's this dead area in the middle, the non-canonical address space in user space. And then there's the high, the high address range is uh, the kernel. But it's a lot more than 32-bit. Like it's arguable that you can brute force a 32-bit ASLR program, like if you can get it to just keep respawning, you don't even have to guess. You just pick an address and keep hitting it until it lines up with, <laughs> with what you picked. <laughs> um, and uh, on 64-bit, that, that's much, much more unlikely just because of you've gone, gained uh, 30, or sorry, I can do the math, 16 more bits of entropy, basically, in VA space. Now the kernel, as I've sort of alluded to here on the 64-bit address space, is in, just in that upper tiny range. Uh, the way at least the x86 kernel runs is with a two gigabyte uh, window at the top of memory. So that's even smaller than the 32-bit address space of user space. Um, so it, it has a much, much more limited range that it can move around in. And the, the granularity of steps is also 
weird because in user space, usually you can do like page level, like, you know, 4K, you can step in 4K uh, positions within that space. But the kernel's got a, a lot of alignment things that are tied to two megabytes. Um, so it has fewer steps it can take in a much smaller space, um, which I think comes out to something really silly like 256 positions are possible. Now, the operational difference, though, with that, of course, is if you're trying to attack one machine and you guess wrong, you generally are going to take out the machine. You can't try again. <laughs> um, so it is at least noisy. But it was, um, even in user space, it's designed as a, you know, it's not a perfect thing. It is just a probabilistic defense. You have to add another step to your attack to figure out like, how do I gain knowledge of where this random base is that I can continue my attack? So it's, uh, it's lengthening the chain of an attack necessary. Um, and uh, I think just dive into some other you know, people's objections to this is, well, doesn't this add complexity then to just add one more step in an attack? Is that worth it, et cetera? Obviously, I think it's worth it, but uh, other people have reasonable opinions about it. Right. Um, some of the other objections I've heard are that KS, it has broken um, hibernation in the past. Mm -hmm. Has that been addressed? Yes, that was. I mean, that was addressed when it was first first went out. Like I think there was one release the kernel that had something broken and got sorted and backported and then it went away. Um, but it, I just wanted it, to yeah. be clear on that one. Um, well, yeah, that's there have been bugs and that's the that's the angle on the complexity piece, right? Like, right. oh yeah, it adds complexity. But um, what's what I think is interesting about it is that as a as a sort of computer science endeavor having a relocatable kernel, like you can't do KSLR without having a relocatable kernel image to begin right. with. Which um, was another uh, objection to it because traditionally Pi-based code was slower, at least on x86. Can you speak uh, to that? So, yeah. So the problem for x86 was registers, uh, register availability. Uh, and GCC's register allocator for the 32-bit for IE32 was not great, um, and it made a lot of poor choices, and you'd end up doing a lot more register spilling in and out, um, and it would slow things down. Uh, luckily, that got solved a couple of years ago. They made some significant improvements to their register allocator, and that most of that has vanished, but that sort of happened after the bulk of systems moved to 64-bit, where there's tons more registers, and it just it's not an issue there at all. Um, as far as performance in that regard. So yeah, the, like the 32-bit ASLR on the older GCCs certainly had problems, um, but like everything, it's been a, it's always been a trade-off uh, what, what people wanted to tolerate for, for adding another step to an attack chain to make, to make it successful. There, so the current kernel layout randomization, it, it moves the whole kernel as a single chunk, right? Right. So you have a base address. If one address leaks, you can basically know all addresses in the kernel. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, and that, right. That reminds me of the thing I'd forgotten was the talking about the relocatable kernel piece is the relocatable kernel capability. The fact that the kernel can be relocated is useful in places outside of KSLR. 
so exercising the, like the bulk of that code, the fact that it has been able to be moved around, um, and any say performance issues or whatever else is sort of more associated with it being relocatable than it necessarily being having been randomized. Um, but things like um, uh, kexec, you know, being able to jump into a second kernel that's in a different place in memory, like that depends on a relocatable kernel. So it's it's um, uh, I, I try to help people separate or make a distinction between relocation and available VA space and base offset randomization, etc. But anyway, going back to what you just asked about that, yeah, the the primary weakness is that all you need is one you know memory content exposure and an awareness of the image itself, which is not hard on distro kernels um, to basically figure everything else out. But as a you know, it raises the, the difficulty of attack, which uh, there have been reasonable objections to, but you just raised the difficulty. You didn't eliminate it. It's like, yeah, but that's the nature of a probabilistic defense. You have to show that it has a meaningful impact. And and we did, right? Like People couldn't continue without getting a, a read exposure. Because before they get a write primitive, they know exactly where to write and they're done. So um, there have been improvements on um, address-based randomization. Uh, one of those was uh, OpenBSD's CARL, their uh, kernel address-based randomization mm -hmm. that they added in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, and there's been some other ones. Microsoft has done some papers, and Facebook has done some papers about reordering things. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, some code currently under review and and in development. Uh, uh, function granular KSLR. Mm -hmm. Can we can we dive into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I have I'm I'm not at all an expert in in what uh, the BSD folks did for theirs, but my memory of it is that it was uh, basically runtime link reordering. They were doing it per object file, I think. Um, That's my recollection. I, yes. Okay, yeah, so, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty so, sure that's what it was. So as I understand it, they are relinking re their kernel. Yeah. And it's um, the initial implementations anyways were actually not exactly at runtime. Okay. They were at install time and at interesting. initial boot. Right. Um, there, yeah. there was some, you know, so what they could do is the, at, at boot, then they would run an RC script that would mm -hmm. relink the kernel object for the next boot. Uh, I see. Okay. Oh. Uh, I don't well, know if that's what they're still doing. Okay. Yeah. It, it's funny because it, it, it reminds me very much of the user space ASLR, uh, like doing the pre-link stuff from right. long ago. Um, but, you know, that, that didn't work great in user space. I think it, it does make sense in the kernel side because... You end up taking uh, related code if you can argue that a you know an object file has mostly related system you know functions, and you keep all them to, all of those together, and then just relocate it against all of the other objects and shuffle everything around, um, which is it's pretty interesting. Um, the 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 concern I have with it as far as sorry I should step back. The purpose for this, of course, was to make it so that you a single exposure doesn't blow the entire defense and that you'd need to expose the location of your target. So you need to know what you wanted to find so that you could find it to begin with. And that becomes much more difficult. 
um, or you need a, a complete arbitrary read and just start at the beginning and read the entire memory image mm -hmm. to find what you wanted. I mean, these things are possible and that's kind of, you know, what some blind drop tools will do is to say, okay, I've got an arbitrary read now. I'm just going to start, I'm going to read everything out to try to find the primitives that I need. Um, but usually at that point, you're just reading heap memory to find your process and give yourself root or something. So it's less, uh, less useful in, in the like unconstrained arbitrary read state. There's not much you can uh, stop your stop from, from being exposed to, but anyway, relinking, uh, at the object level gives you a, a pretty good granularity on that because you end up with, you know, how many object files are in your kernel uh, a lot. So you now have that many bases and they're all mixed up. Um, the function granular, uh, oh, so, but that, as you were talking about, has a lot of infrastructure associated with it. Like yeah. you, you gotta do these things, do all this sort of special extra stuff. Um, and the idea with the function granular uh, KSLR was to sort of lean on existing pieces of both the tool chain and the kernel's uh, boot tooling, like how it gets itself loaded into memory. Um, and one feature uh, in the compilers is this uh, function section thing, which is used for you know, various you know, dead code elimination stuff, like trying to figure out, oh, you nothing ever appears to call this function. We probably don't need to include it in the final image. Like all, all this you know, stuff that was, was added for that kind of analysis. Um, but you end up getting now a single section in your ELF file for each function, which um, is it's interesting. You end up with a really wacky ELF file because you have now six, you know, on a kernel, you have, you know, 70,000 functions. Uh, so you have 70,000 sections instead of two, like you <laughs> used to have just text and maybe some other stuff. Uh, so it, that, that exposed some issues with the ELF parsers that we had um, because they all expected no more than 64,000 sections, although ELF <laughs> has an extension for handling that. So it was just, oh yeah, we got to teach, you know, mod info or whatever. Like we have to teach a module section about the, the module loader about this and you know, just implement the other part of the ELF spec that we hadn't bothered to implement, um, which is straightforward. But then what you also get is because they're using all standard ELF tooling to describe these sections, you end up with relocation information um, for all of the functions and all of the sections. So you can actually put them anywhere in memory and just perform your relocations like you normally do in the kernel boot. Because at boot time, you have to sort of go through and deal with the fact that the kernel is a relocatable image and resolve all the relocations that are in the text segment. So that would just happen naturally because the kernel already does that. So that isn't any different. Uh, and the kernel also already copies the image from where it was from, you know, where the bootloader put it, it will decompress it out into some other new location. And that decompression step basically has this copy. So there wasn't much code to say, well, as we're decompressing it, we can just lay it out randomly on a per section basis and update the relocation table as we go. So that was a small piece to add as well. And suddenly you have a completely reorganized per function 
boot that relies on the existing infrastructure that the kernel already uses uh, for all the relocations and everything else. Uh, and it, it works. Uh, it was uh, much simpler. Like there were corner cases and weird things. Like there was some tables that got sorted uh, that needed to be resorted, you know, got sorted at build time that now needed to be sorted at runtime, uh, stuff like that. But as a result, now all the functions, not all, but the majority of the standard functions without explicit section names uh, have been completely shuffled. So that sounds like it could be implemented with minimal changes to the secure boot story. Oh yeah, I mean I don't I don't see any I don't see any differences. Your image is the same, right? The, the kernel image hasn't actually changed the nature of its construction. It's still an image, and it's still got the relocation information, and it's still an ELF file. Like there's no there's no real difference. But it does require uh, some randomization at boot, a time when there's notoriously little randomness to go around. Good thing x86 CPUs have uh, a built-in random number generator. That is very good. <laughs> Do any other architectures have similar tools? Is this... uh, ARM64 added a, a like a chipset RNG at some point, like ARM V8.3, 4, I don't actually remember which which version it is, but they, they added one. Um, and before that, uh, the ARM64 basically just sort of uh, kicked the can down the road and said, we'll just get a random number from the bootloader. Make it the bootloader's problem. And the bootloader's like, cool, I will get my random number from magic. I don't know. <laughs> so then it became sort of a per, you know, SOC problem to solve. Like, what's, how does your bootloader get entropy? Mm, I don't know. That seems to, to be the way the ARM ecosystem works anyhow, so it was probably very familiar for them. Right, it didn't seem like it was difficult. Like, no one seemed to freak out at that and when it was proposed. Everyone's like, yeah, okay. And I'm like, uh, is this actually going to get done? And I took a look at it, yeah, sure enough, they are coming up with random numbers. I mean, maybe they only have five random numbers, I don't know. But I haven't studied the entropy of the bootloaders. Uh, but as sort of a hope that it's not that terrible um but but not trusting it uh the like kernel command line gets mixed in to the rng and a couple other things just because um at least for android like the per volume information is part of the boot command line and the volume is different for every device or something like so, there is some hash or random like per device value that ends up being different somewhere in there so you realistically could have no two machines with an identical memory layout after boot. It might not be what you would consider cryptographically fantastic, but it might be good enough for deterring exploits. It would. It certainly requires a much higher level of information exposure. Um, and that's, with a lot of the probabilistic defenses, I, I look at it as um, trying to elevate or, or equate the difficulty of attack to other things. Like, hey, this attack is easy, that attack is hard. No one is going to do the hard attack. Like, that's like that's outrageous. No attacker is gonna spend their time trying to do the hard attack. They're gonna go the easy way. So if you can elevate your easy attacks to you know getting equally difficult or more difficult than something else, then you sort of 
change the nature of, of the attack space. And suddenly it is more expensive to do that old style attack. You have to invest, you know, look at something else. Um, you know, now, now it becomes, oh, now we need an attack that, or we need a set of flaws that gets me a complete arbitrary read of the entire memory space. Okay, but that's kind of a powerful primitive. Like, if you don't have that primitive, now you can't perform your attacks? Okay. Or someone invents new methodologies to convert other flaws into more powerful flaws. Okay, fine. That's good and important research. We should, we would like to have that knowledge. Why not help that along as far as, you know, research? So what is the cost associated with doing uh, the function granular KALSR? Um, so it looks like because you have so radically scattered your functions all over the kernel, potentially, um, it looks like there are some instruction cache uh, problems. Like you, you end up with different, you know, different layouts. So you can sometimes end up with kind of pathological cases where you're clobbering the same cache line over and over. Um, so in, in an unlucky case, you get, you know, I, I think I think they had measured at worst like a one percent performance hit uh, in a pathological case, which isn't isn't very bad. Um, but again, this is sort of for me. It's like okay, cool. Well, if you end up in a pathological case enough, you're going to look at it and say, well, why? What what needed to be next to it? Like what what things needed to be near each other for this to be an efficient kernel execution environment? And you can start doing that analysis like a auto FDO and, and some of the PGO, you know, performance analysis things of, of running kernels, you can start feeding that information back into the, you know, the, the sections and say, well, okay, instead of having each of our functions in a different section, how about these four functions that are always called like one after another or whatever, they should be near each other so we can actually use a whole, you know, several cache lines or whatever. Uh, without clobbering each other, uh, you end up with that analysis and you can start refining how functions are associated with each other uh, in what would hopefully be an automated fashion. Right now, a kernel already does this to a certain extent. Um, the scheduler has, uh, because you know that's sort of the, the critical execution part of the kernel is the scheduler, um, all of that code actually lives in a separate section. It's specified to live in a specific text section that's, that's, um, that keeps everything together and is carefully analyzed um, and isn't touched by this by the FGKSLR because it already has an assigned section. Um, so as we sort of move forward with more research into the performance, you know, the runtime performance, we can tweak FGKSLR, uh, which is, I, I, I like this about Linux kernel development is things are evolutionary in this way. You don't try to just throw everything out and start over. You say, well, what's the next step? How do we make right. this a little bit better? Um, and that's, that's, that's what I like about this is like, yeah, it's, it's not perfect, but it definitely pushes us forward on a number of fronts and, and helps us pretty distinctly with, you know, uh, the sort of performance guided optimization style things. Yeah. Right. So one of the, the, pros to this is it um, kind of goes along the same line as Bolt, which it does 
runtime optimizations. Right. And while Bolt itself, if we applied it to the kernel with this, would um, reduce the randomness, mm -hmm. uh, you potentially get a performance increase out right. of doing this. Yeah, and, and that's what I like. I like thinking about uh, how you know the you know the, the alleged BSD approach, which again I don't know if it's still done that way, is you know by object file. Well, do we really know that that's the most efficient way to do that? Who knows? Totally randomizing every function everywhere. Well, we can see the cases where that's not great, but like there's some middle ground between these two sides that says here. Here are the, the like clumps of efficient pieces that we want to keep together, and we can detect that potentially, you know, for your specific workload, you know, for a given system's workload that can be manipulated uh, over time, and then you get as much entropy as makes sense against your performance. Like you actually end up with sort of a knob you can turn in that regard. Um, that, that's at least how I'd envision it. But yeah, it's sort of the research. That's that's how you move research is you have a thing and then people use it and test it and try it. So how do we get this thing? What's the current status of it? Um, it's, it's actually, I don't know, from my perspective, it's done. Um, it was done like a year and a half ago, uh, but there was one bug against uh, like live patching um, that got tracked down but then solved differently about six months ago. So there's sort of this, you know, start over, rebase, test it again cycle that uh, was a little slow and, and people's responsibilities at Intel, I think, shifted around. So uh, someone else took over uh, driving the patch series um, and they, they saw some improvements they could make. They're like, hey, you know, there's assembly routines that we could probably be tossed into the randomization mix and, you know, had different ideas about how to do the, the the linker, like the link time for that final elf image, uh, in the in the earlier version, depended on sort of an, an accidental behavior—not accidental, but depends on a behavior of the linker to just um, to keep sections with their original name. Like if you didn't specify where they go, the linker just says, "Oh, okay, I guess you just want this section also. I'll just stick it over here and I'll put it nearby some other sections." Um, and it, that uh, wasn't great when you're trying to build an image and actually know all the sections you're expecting. Um, so uh, the better approach is to actually say, okay, we're expecting these sections. Unfortunately, that now we are expecting 70,000 specific sections. Yeah. Um, and uh, as it turns out, the linkers were not designed to read a 70,000 line linker script. And so they have some uh, pathological slowdowns on, on link time that probably we could go find in like five lines to fix this in, in both uh, uh, BFD linker and LLD. Uh, but they're, it's really slow to link on the current one. But uh, that is a solvable problem. I'm not excited about it because I prefer not impacting link time for people to test this. I'd rather it be like sloppy and fast linking first, and then we can solve the speed issue and then make it an exact and fast. Um, I don't want to lose the fast because it will drive away too many people who might want to actually try it. 
So just how slow are we talking? <laughs> uh, several minutes for the oh, final link. That is painful. With a linker at 100% CPU. Because it's doing some like big O N to the fours. I don't know. Like It's doing something insane and just walking this list, looking for a match, probably just over and over and over. So it's probably big O N squared or something when it doesn't need to be. Accidentally right. quadratic. <laughs> yes, accidentally quadratic. Exactly. Um, I had a, an alternative solution instead of dumping all of these into, uh, you know, by name into the linker script. You could just have a catch-all in a linker script that says anything that has this form, pass it through with its original name. Like the linker scripts right now say anything that has this wildcard, like dot text dot star, take those and collect them all into a final section that will be renamed to dot text. Like that's sort of how it collects things right now. And with a with the uh, you know per per function sections, you get the dot text dot whatever, but you don't want to collect them. You want to keep them separate so they can get randomized later. Um, and the linker has a, uh, a another wildcard thing for discards. You can say just throw away any sections that have a name of this following pattern, you know, like dot debug dot what star, just discard it. Don't put it in the final image. But there isn't any language in the linker script to say take this pattern and pass it through with its original name. Like there just needs to be a pass through like discards for doing that. And if we, I think if we add that, that would be the much cleaner solution to this because then we don't have to scrape all of the object files and dump them into a linker script and then wait for the linker to match each one by name. You can just do the wildcard pattern match and say, oh yeah, dot text dot star, sure, we'll just pass it through. Whatever its name was, we keep it. Don't collect it, just keep it. Seems like a pretty obvious feature request, yes. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, the kernel is the weird one, right? No one in their right mind does these kinds of things. So, but at this point, I think the compiler folks are sort of used to the Linux kernel showing up and saying, hi, we want to do this one weird thing. Please <laughs> help us. And they go, what? Why? And then we <laughs> explain and they go, oh, you people live with the worst constraints in the world. Okay, I guess we can help you. <laughs> I imagine there's a certain amount of pride in being able to meet those needs and a certain amount of frustration that they exist at all. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like to think of it as there are, there are a couple really interesting sort of problems that get solved. There's my alarm. Um, there's a lot of interesting problems that you have to find tricky solutions to. Like, how do we keep this from going quadratic? You know, is there a way we can do this efficiently? Good thing engineers like solving efficiency problems. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, so I'd, I'd like to see the FGKSLR get in. Um, I think it would be, it's interesting and it, um, it luckily does not run into another problem which sort of got solved a couple, well, not about solved, but got uh, ran into headlong a couple, several releases ago about um, doing debugging uh, of the kernel. Like frequently, someone debugging the kernel and someone attacking the kernel are basically using the same tools, need the same information. Um, so if you try to make it harder for someone to attack the kernel, you also tend to make it harder for someone to debug it. Um, and uh, 
memory exposures or memory address exposures into logs has forever been a, a problem. You know, it's like, hey, this thing at this address happened. Oh no, it just sits in the log and the attacker goes, cool. Thanks for telling me exactly the address I needed. Off I go. Um, so dealing with those exposures, um, but Linus Torvalds at some point finally got sick of people trying to solve this in, in clever ways. And he said, "Never mind. we'll just like, if you use percent P in any format strings, it will just not print the address anymore. We're going to print some crazy 32-bit hash and blah, that's what you get. It's stable for the boot. So you can see two addresses. You can do, you know, quality tests, but it doesn't tell you anything about the actual address. Um, so suddenly the, you know, oh, you can't, you can't take a kernel image and look at a crash dump or a crash log and say, oh, that number is this function. So all through the kernel, these percent P uses, someone went, oh, actually, you know, you're right. I don't need the number. I need the function. I need the symbol. So they all got turned into percent P S, not capital S, which is don't tell me the number, go through the KL sims routine to go figure out what function this is and it's offset and, and everything. And it turns out that's way more helpful in, in, in logs. So like this, this was a nice benefit of the debuggers, you know, the people doing debugging and made hopefully the attacker's job more difficult. Um, so now with, you know, function granular KSLR, one of the long ago worries was, oh my God, these numbers are going to be completely meaningless. Like, even if I have a base offset, that doesn't matter. Now it's just random numbers filling my logs. This could be impossible to debug. Like, no, no, it's fine. The symbols are all there now. So enjoy. Nice. Yeah, that was, that was a relief. <laughs> because I, I was not looking forward to dealing with that argument about FGKSLR, which is a completely reasonable argument. Um, yeah. So we converted everything to just symbolizing it in kernel. And I really like the approaches that remove an entire class of problem. I mean, that's just an absolute win. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's it's uh, really keeps coming up. Like this is what I'm after is just stop the the uh, flaw origination, uh, which is another not unreasonable objection to FGKSLR is that it is very late in an exploit. Um, you know, usually someone who is going to get annoyed by dealing with ASLR of any kind already has a flaw that they are manipulating in some way. They already have some form of memory corruption that they're trying to put to, you know, into a weird machine that they can control. It would be much, much better if we just didn't have the flaw in the first place. So uh, I think. Sure. In the magical world, we don't have them. <laughs> well, but I mean, like we keep seeing the same sets of flaws and we have, we have solutions. It's just a matter of the willpower to in, enable them uh, and actually put them into use in C, um, which is, it's really difficult for people who have been using C idioms and, and depending on the machine code, like, how things behave don't uh, are not excited about those kinds of changes. Sure. But, um, some of those flaws can be fixed by moving off of C or whatever. True. Yeah. I mean, but, moving completely off the languages would be nice, but that's going to be even slower than fixing C. There's always going to be some logical flaws that absolutely that can be exploited. Yeah. I, I'm really amused by the, uh, 
this this will date the podcast forever, I'm sure, but talking about two specific uh, exploits you know, uh, that have been uh, in, in the news in the past week now is the like the Java JNDI string evaluation stuff. Like that's that's not memory corruption. Right. That's string evaluation. Like your fuzzer's not gonna find that because you didn't crash. You just called into some other function. It's it's the you know it's a format string flaw. It's super super annoying uh, to find. So those aren't going to be as easily solved. But then you look at um, this uh, the iMessage you know XPDF flaw that just got uh, shown as being the, the core of some um, surveillance malware, and uh, it's. It's an integer overflow followed by an array bounds overflow. Like, we, we can solve this. <laughs> like, yeah. C, allowing overflowing arithmetic was a mistake. But we can solve this. It's just that there's um, there's stuff in the way. Like, <laughs> my favorite example of this is um, uh, C, like, there are idioms in C for testing for overflow. Like you want to be defensive. And this is sort of in the minds of everyone using C is like, oh my God, nothing is protecting me. I have to do all these checks myself. So you're like, okay, I'm going to do some math here. I have I have, I have a variable and I need to add something to it, but I need to make sure it doesn't overflow. So I will test this by saying, you know, I have an overflow handler called, you know, handle overflow, whatever. So I can call that function. So I'll take variable plus what I need to add, like if variable plus what I need to add is less than variable, then we've overflowed. So we're depending on the two's complement wraparound on overflow. And that C will resolve that into the machine code that gets you the overflow turns into a wraparound so you can detect your overflow correctly. Like, uh, and this is scattered everywhere in the kernel that's that kind of logic where you you test for is this less than what i started with uh it must have overflowed like yeah stop it <laughs> and that's at least specified for unsigned integers. so exactly it's it's it is it is legal in the sense that it is part of the c-spec for unsigned integers uh, it is undefined behavior for signed variables and pointers are considered in most cases signed variables are they now so when you do this math How exciting yes so when you do this math if pointer plus offset is less than pointer oh it would overflow i, I can't do that except and the compiler writers like using undefined behavior as a source of optimization exactly so that just disappears Oh, okay. You know how much engineers love making things fast. <laughs> so this was a problem long, long, long ago, and the kernel already flipped on the option for treat sign overflow as two's comp it's like as two's complement wraparound. Like treat it like unsigned. So it is no like there is an option to say this is not undefined behavior, do this. Do it for signed integers, do it for pointers. It should all behave the same as unsigned, which is nice, except then you can't use the uh, undefined behavior sanitizer for integer overflow detection because it's not undefined behavior anymore. That hurts. God! It makes perfect sense, yeah. but it hurts. <laughs> right. 
So anyway, like this, this is what I mean is like, we can solve this for C. We have the tooling for it. We just have to fix, we have to get rid of the idioms that do the, that depend on the behavior and replace them with the tools that are supposed to do this overflow checking correctly and safely. Um, and then find the places where we are generally like actively wrapping around. Like it, we, it is part of whatever that behavior is, you know, is it a, you know, is it a ring buffer pointer? Is it, you know, like there, there are situations where we actually have wraparound that we are doing intentionally. Um, mark those as, please don't instrument me. I'm expecting to wrap around. And then we're left with cool trap every other case of overflow. And suddenly C is safe because there's no more overflows. All the places where you're expecting to wrap around are clearly marked. So there's no guessing. That is the intention. This will wrap. All the crazy stuff has been replaced with, you know, good overflow detection and anything that's left isn't expected to ever wrap. So it should, it should absolutely abort or freak out or do whatever. And suddenly that goes away. The entire class of problem vanishes. So I, I would like to see that. And I've been trying to help people chip away at that. The current one is solving the, but wait, UBSAN, uh, UBSAN signed integer overflow doesn't actually work anymore. <laughs> we kind of need that. We need to be able to instrument these cases. Anyway, we've gotten off topic from ASLR things, but yeah, I think it's the these the classes of, of flaws would be nice to fix. And I think, and, and we can fix, I think is my, my main point. Like all of the knowledge necessary is, is there, even for array overflows. Like something knows how big that array is. We just have to make sure that the APIs that manipulate it have access to it. And uh, memcopy is not the right API for that. some of the processors have built-in bounds checking. Is that a usable tool in this space? Is it? Um, well, there's a, there've been a lot of attempts. Like bounds checking is <laughs> a big problem. So different, different CPUs have taken a lot of different approaches. Um, there's like, there's a, like Intel's MPX had sort of like tables of sizes, but that ended up being really storage inefficient because you had to like keep these updated or, or cache inefficient. Like, oh, we don't have the table loaded, so we have to go load it up. And it started making, you know, under some workloads, performance was not consistent. Like you did, it's almost started behaving like garbage collection in a way that you, at any moment, oops, I have to reload a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and then there's uh, like, memory coloring or tagging where you say, oh, I'm going to use a couple bits at the top of my pointer that would normally be, you know, that, are, that will be ignored by the CPU, but the, the memory system will say, oh, you're, you're asking for this address, but you only have you know, bits two and three set, but I see that this address is supposed to only have bit four set. I'm going to fault your, you know, I'm going to stop that access so that the memory tagging <clears throat> has been like Spark added it, uh, ADI a while back, and um, ARM64 added it, the, the MTE memory tagging extension. And that's that's interesting. It, it comes with 
different overheads, like to reset a range of tags on ARM64 is as expensive as zeroing the memory range, um, which, which isn't terrible because usually you want to zero it anyway. Um, so it's kind of nice. And in fact, one of the, one of the instructions for that is tag and zero. <laughs> like, cool, I can do that. It takes the same amount of time as just tagging it. Thank you. Um, and that gets you in like each architecture has a different granularity, like how, how many bytes you can specify this, this allocation is, you know, 1024 bytes. Cool. We can do that. Or, you know, is it page level granular? Is it 16 bytes granular? How, how carefully can we control it? Um, which is really, it's nice for, um, arbitrary allocations. Um, it's less great for fields within allocations because you end up with, uh, inter object, you know, you can stop inter object overflows. We go from one, you keep writing past the end of some object into the next one. Memory tagging totally solves it in like deterministically like you're done you can design it so you never have neighboring allocations with the same tags and suddenly linear overflows are dead uh, for those types of allocations um, but if what you're overflowing was a small field within that object until you get over to the function pointer that's also in that object and eh, memory tagging didn't get you anything so we still need even finer grain um, buffer overflow checking. Um, but again, that's also something that uh, is getting worked on in the kernel. Just want to get rid of the classes of functions, uh, of flaws in the kernel. It would be nice. That certainly does seem at times that we're playing a game of whack-a-mole where you mm -hmm. find, oh, there's yet another BPF verifier vulnerability. Oh, there's another case where the copy from user had the incorrect bounds applied. Oh, there's a yeah. A mem I mean, copy used the source size instead of the destination size. Well, this is, uh, I I look at this as either rage or lazy based uh, career on my part, which was, oh yeah, I'm doing security updates. Cool. I just keep getting updates for the same thing over and over. This would be my job would be so easy if we just didn't have that at all, and I wouldn't have any of those updates to do. Sweet. Let's do that. <laughs> Turns out, fifteen years like, oh, later. Yeah, fifteen years later. Oh, still, still the same thing. Turns out it's C. That's the big <laughs> problem. I mean, it's funny too because this is, all of this will just push research into you know data only attacks and logic bugs and everything else. But it's like that's okay. Those flaws also exist now too. They won't spring into life when we solve you know this the low hanging fruit of memory corruption. They're still here. You know, our friends in academia are still working on proof verification tools and protocol correctness tools. You know, they're. That's they're, important they're, too. <laughs> just, you know, they're they're trying to build the research that'll you know serve as a foundation for the safety against the database mm -hmm. attacks, and, and and that's good. Like, hopefully, we can put that to use in parallel to making data only attacks uh, more interesting for attackers. But yeah, I would just like my computer to do what I mean, not what <laughs> what I said. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's um, 
that's sort of the brain dump I have on ASLR and flaws in general. <laughs> yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, good. I think we've detained you more than long enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I, I like talking thank about you it. very much case yeah that's awesome thank you it's been fun chatting about it i like i like talking about it <laughs> <laughs> so we've been talking with case cook and hope we can follow up on this again at some point thank you awesome. very much thanks take care thank you and thanks again so much case and to seth and john uh, for sitting down doing that interview uh, that is really awesome Alright, uh, so that is it for this week's episode. As I said, we've really kicked off 2022 with a bang with that interview. Uh, so happy to be able to bring that to everyone. I really do hope that we can bring more uh, great content like that to you for, through the rest of the year at different points. Uh, as usual, if you want to get in contact with us about anything you've heard in this episode or other ones, you can email the team at securityubuntu.com. We also hang out in the Ubuntu security channel on libera.chat, the IRC network, and we're on Twitter as well, at Ubuntu underscore sec as well. Yeah, so thanks everyone for listening uh, for the start of this year. As I said, we hope to bring you some more awesome stuff throughout the rest of 2022. Uh, Until then, remember, keep calm because we've got your back and we'll speak to you soon. Bye.